Well, welcome to church with us today, wherever you are and however you're gathering. It's good to be able to sing out our praises to God. Psalm 122 starts by saying, I rejoiced with those who said, said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Well, this is our last week of pre-recording and next week we will be able to gather again in person in the church building, rejoicing together as we gather in the name of the Lord in, in his building. Uh, we'll also still continue to live stream from 10am and the video will be available afterwards if you're not able to join us at that time. Um, but as we, as we look forward to gathering next week, there are things that we need to be mindful of. It's not going to be quite the same. There will, be, there will be changes and adjustments. Um, at this point, I think we'll be able to sing, but it might just have to be just gentle, quiet singing. We can't yet belt it all out as we might like to, uh, for instance. Particularly, too, as, as we come, we'll need to sign in uh, and, and follow kind of set pathways and be ushered to our, our seats. Um, and so um, you might need to allow extra time for that as you, as you come next week. Don't rely on Baptist time, uh, that you've got a spare 10 minutes up your sleeve, but get here early for that. Um, initially, too, just to say we won't be having kids' church uh, or our evening service. We'll just have this one service where we're all in together. Um, though we will look to start up those other services and, and, and such uh, probably from about March. We're still in the midst of this, too, considering the place of neighbourhood churches and, and how they fit in to us regathering together. Um, but I encourage you, as if your neighbourhood church has been meeting and, and it's been a good thing, don't stop meeting. Maybe it just changes how it looks like and it becomes a, a meal once a month to, or, or something like that that you do. Uh, to let you know that this week our, our elders are meeting together for the first time this year and so I ask you to be in prayer for them uh, as they look together to, to seek God's will and leading uh, for our church as we go into this next season. There are also significant matters going on in the, in the lives of our, our members so please keep one another in prayer throughout the week. So let's move to prayer then now. God, we thank you that in this season of COVID and restrictions and lockdown, that we have still been able to uh, worship you together. We've still been able to hear your word preached. We've still been able to um, have technology that enables us to, to contact one another with ease and to uh, still be aware of what's going on. We're so looking forward to being able to gather again uh, together as your people in the one space. But we do thank you for the opportunities that you have given us throughout this past season and the, the ways in which we've still been able to stay connected. God, we want to pray for our elders this week as they meet together to pray and to seek you, to work through some business, to, to build, uh, continue building relationship together as a team too. We pray for them, God, that you would give wisdom and insight, that you would give them discernment and sensitivity to how and where you are leading and that they would um, be good shepherds of the flock over which you've appointed them here. We're aware too, God, that in the midst of our congregation, there are those in this past week who are grieving the loss of loved ones. There are those who are suffering anxiety and, and depression there are those uh, with serious health um, 
concerns, diagnoses, and the impacts of that on them. There are relationships that are that are just starting, and there are ones that are that are ending. And we just want to declare again through all these circumstances that you are faithful. Great is your faithfulness. Uh, Your mercies, God, they are new every morning. And we thank you for them that enable us to to get through each day, each each week, each moment. And we just pray that uh, in all that we face, that we will look to you, trust in you, and rely on your goodness and your faithfulness to us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I wonder if I were to ask you to to close your eyes for a moment and to picture what you think Jesus looks like. I wonder what kind of images would come up for you. So many of our mental images of Jesus have been shaped by art through the ages. And I suspect that for most of us, you know, with our eyes closed, trying to get this picture of Jesus in our minds, that for most of us, we would picture Jesus as this kind of supernatural, otherworldly kind of figure. He's surrounded by a a, a vague glow. Not a hair is out of place, and he barely touches the earth that he walks on. Despite traveling the dusty roads of Israel, he's he's always clean. He doesn't sweat. His clothes, they're, they're unstained. He rarely smiles, never laughs, and he definitely doesn't break wind. Even, and you know, even as he endures the agony of the cross, there's still this sense that the pain of it doesn't fully touch him. The the picture that we so often have is a Jesus who is supernatural and and otherworldly. And as much as we might admire him and follow him, it's a Jesus utterly unlike us. But one of the things that I think that Luke in his gospel is at pains to, to make us realize is that Jesus was in fact human, just like us living an ordinary life just like us. He was conceived under a cloud of controversy. He was born into poverty. He fulfilled the rituals required by Jewish custom and law. He had brothers and sisters. He obeyed his parents. He learnt a trade. Like he lived a very ordinary human life. In fact, you could possibly say that his life was the definition of an ordinary human life. Not in the specifics of, you know, being a Middle Eastern carpenter, but in the sense of living in right relationship with God and with his will. He lived life as it was meant to be lived, a life where he knew God, depended on God and obeyed God as he worked and related and rested and worshipped and and all else that he did. In this way, I think Jesus is the model of what an ordinary human life should look like. Now, all of this, though, is not to deny Jesus' two natures. I mean, Jesus is both fully God and fully human. But I think that we tend to default to emphasizing the the divine nature of his life. And so when we consider this idea of becoming more like Jesus, we figure that that's actually well out of our reach. He was God after all, and and we're not. And, And while that's true, let's remember as well, though, that he was human Uh, just as we are. So as we come to our story from Luke's account of his life today, we see Jesus' ordinariness continue. 
There's no sign of the miraculous or the divine in the experience of Jesus' temptation. He faced it just as we do. So let's have a look at it together. It's in Luke chapter 4. I'll read just the first couple of verses uh, as these then set up the rest of the story. Luke chapter 4, and it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. Now, as I said, there's a, there's a lot in these verses. So if we first back up a little bit to the previous chapter, uh, we witness there Jesus' baptism where a voice from heaven declared, You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. This is then followed by a genealogy, which starts by saying that Jesus was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. Before it, working through the generations, it finishes with Jesus being the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So twice, by two different means, Jesus' identity as the Son of God has been affirmed. Keep this in mind as we go through the rest of the passage. Now, Luke inserts this genealogy between, between the baptism and then Jesus' temptation. Luke puts in this genealogy, the, the family tree, if you like. But in Mark's account of, of this incident, the, the baptism and the temptation are in quick succession. For Mark, Jesus comes out of the water, the voice speaks from heaven, and at once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. Luke lacks that same immediacy, but what he emphasizes then is the presence and the role of the Holy Spirit. He says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, we can't infer too much from just uh, one verse, but some make the argument that, that Jesus, having laid his divine powers aside, did what he did through the empowering presence of the Spirit in his life. And so here's the thing for us. The same Spirit that is in Jesus uh, at this point is the same Spirit that is in us. And just as Jesus was full of the Spirit, so too are we encouraged to be. Not only was Jesus full of the Spirit, but Luke tells us that he was also led by the Spirit. And the place that the Spirit immediately takes him to is into the wilderness, the desert, a dry, empty place. Maybe you know what the wilderness feels like because that's where you find yourself at the moment. And the incredible thing is that it's the Spirit who led Jesus there. Which tells me that, that the Spirit-filled, the Spirit-led life is not all cosy and rosy. It's not all power and healing and wonders. I mean, yes, those things are a part of life in the Spirit. But the Spirit's leading and work is just as likely to take us into a place of weakness and of vulnerability. Because what I think Jesus shows us in this story is that a Spirit-filled life is one of humble faithfulness in walking in God's ways, wherever that takes us to. Because here's the last thing I want to point out from these opening verses. Jesus was led in the wilderness for 40 days where he was tempted by the devil. Now, there's two connections for us to make here. First is the reference to the 40 days. This would literally jump off the page for the early Jewish hearers and readers of this. 
particularly as these 40 days is connected to a time in the wilderness. Jesus' experience here is an echo of the experience of the Israelites as they spent 40 years in the desert before they finally entered the promised land. And so here, Jesus is identifying himself with the people of Israel. And where they failed through their grumbling and complaints and their distrust of God, Jesus will prove himself humbly faithful as he walks with what God has for him. The second thing to note is the reference to his temptation by the devil. Specifics of that temptation will come, but, but with this incident coming so quickly after uh, the reference in, in his genealogy to Jesus being the son of Adam, Jesus is also identifying himself, not just with the people of Israel, but with humanity in general. And where in Adam, humanity failed to live in humble faithfulness and to walk faithfully in God's ways and instead reached out for, for something more on their own terms, Jesus will continue to trust and obey God despite what it is that the, that the devil offers to him. Well, after eating nothing for 40 days, Luke tells us that Jesus was hungry, which I think is an understatement. With a, a teenage, almost teenage son in our house, even 40 minutes after that time, they're hungry. And so we read on then in verse 3. Remember, Jesus is hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Well, just as the serpent asked Adam and Eve, Did God really say? So he questions God's words again now to Jesus. If you really are the Son of God. And it's unclear whether he's saying this to try to undermine Jesus' sense of identity or, or if it's a challenge for him to, to practically kind of prove it or, or both. But either way, he goes for Jesus' point of vulnerability and weakness, bread. Now, I've done a high-protein, low-carb diet before and I found myself, out of all the foods that I had denied myself under this diet, the, the thing that I craved was just bread. And Jesus has been fasting 40 days and the thought of bread, you know, hot, fresh, crusty bread, that would have been an absolute tease. In other words, this is a real temptation that Jesus is facing. The writer to the Hebrews says that in Jesus, we have someone who was tempted in every way, just as we are. He was hungry and bread was on offer. This was a genuine human struggle. Surely, after fasting so long, he, he deserved to eat. Well, Satan had questioned the words of God. And so Jesus responds with them. Verse 4, Jesus answered, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Jesus' answer hits back on two levels. Most immediately, it's a reminder that, that life is about more than just material things. It's about more than just having our physical needs and wants met. Yes, Jesus was hungry, but there's something more significant to him that, than meeting that need, and that is to walk humbly uh, and faithfully uh, with God. Now, at a deeper level, though, too, the verse that Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 8, 
It connects Jesus' experience uh, again with that of the Israelites in the wilderness. In Deuteronomy 8, Moses says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble you and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known. And he did this to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Notice that as the Spirit had led Jesus into the wilderness, so God had led Israel into theirs. And he did so to know what was in your heart, to know whether they would obey him. And as it turns out, Israel failed that test, but Jesus did not. And so the devil tried something else. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. We are still at the very early stages of Jesus' ministry here. In fact, it kind of hasn't even started yet. It begins after this incident. But remember at the end, uh, after Jesus' resurrection and before his ascension to heaven, Jesus came to his disciples and he told them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Likewise, Paul declares that God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, Jesus got everything that the devil was offering to him here. But the path to it was through the cross. Satan was offering Jesus a crown without the cross, sovereignty without suffering, glory without agony. He was offering an easy, pain-free path. But such an offer was a lie. Such an offer was a, a false promise because the reality was Satan couldn't give what he was offering. He said he could give authority over the kingdoms of the earth to Jesus because it had been given to him. In other words, there's actually still a, a higher authority over Satan. Imagine that my wife, Marin, passed on a family heirloom to one of our teenage daughters. Let's say it was Nan's, you know, whopping big gold diamond ring that had been her grandmother's before her. Marin gives this ring to Sahara, so now it's, it's hers. But what if Sahara then decides, well, this ring, it's mine. I, I can do what I want with it. So I think I'll give it to that teacher from school that I really liked last year. Does she actually have the authority to give on that ring in that way? No. No, she stepped outside the bounds and the limits of what she was entitled to do. And Marin, as the giver, uh, and the one with the higher authority would be well within her rights to demand the ring back. So likewise, Satan does have authority in this world, but only because it's been given to him by someone who retains a higher power. And that someone 
is the man who is standing before him, Jesus. See, Paul writes to the Colossians, he says, that the Son is the image of the invisible God. God. He's the firstborn over all creation. And it was in him that all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Satan, in other words, was offering to Jesus what was already his and the pathway to it was through the cross. And so Jesus' response to this temptation as to the first was to stay humbly faithful to God and to submit to him only. So at this point, the devil recognizes that um, Jesus' responses to him are coming from the scriptures. So he now quotes a psalm. He, he thinks two can play this game. I'll quote scripture to you and I'll see how that goes. So from verse 9, The devil led Jesus up to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that your foot will not strike against a stone. And Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Notice that again, Satan is trying to get Jesus to prove himself. He he twists the intent of scripture so as to say, you know, if God protects his own. And if you really are then his son, and so, you know, the um, definition of being his own, well, then you can jump from here and you don't have to worry. Actually, in doing this, he's not only questioning Jesus' sonship, but he's also questioning God's goodness. And so Jesus responds with a quote from another of Israel's experience in the wilderness. God, who had brought Israel out of their slavery in Egypt with his mighty hand, leads them to a place called Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. And so they demanded water, putting God's character and his purpose to the test. And at that time, God provided water from a rock. And Moses then called that place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now, here's the ridiculous thing for for Israel. God had performed signs and wonders in Egypt. God then divided the the Red Sea so that they could escape from Pharaoh's army through it. God then led them day and night, his presence visibly with them. God had freshened bitter water so that they could drink it. God daily provided bread from heaven and meat to eat and yet it still wasn't enough for them they still continued to test god demand that he prove himself and his goodness to them again and again and again and so jesus says don't put god to the test don't put yourself over god in such a way that you demand that he needs to prove himself to you and we do this don't we I mean, this is not just a a fault of the people back then. We say, you know, God, if you love me, you'll 
fill in the blanks. It's the same thing. God, prove yourself to me in this way. And Jesus refuses to go there. He didn't need God to prove anything to him because he had the voice of God still ringing in his ears. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. It's like for Jesus, if God says it, then that's enough. He's already proven his love by sending Jesus to die for our sin in our place, by raising Jesus from the dead to give us his life, and by sending the spirit of Jesus into our, our life to, as the deposit and the certainty of what is yet still to come. God doesn't actually need to do anything more to prove his love, his faithfulness towards us. We, though, need to believe in and hold on to his words, his truths, and submit to them. We need to be humble before him, not demanding he prove himself to us, but, but humbly believing what he has said to us, faithfully trusting in him and in his ways. And so the story finishes. When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. You know, though this is the only time that Satan's temptation of Jesus is made explicit, it's not the only time it occurred. He gave up for now, but he continued looking for ways and times to get at Jesus. And in all this, Jesus is an ordinary human being, being genuinely tempted. He is not using divine powers to zap Satan, but he's just humbly depending on God and on his word and he's faithfully walking in his ways. He shows us that we don't have to give in to temptation. In fact, Jesus ended up breaking the power of sin over us so that we no longer need to be in bondage to it. But the reality for us is that we do. We do still give in to temptation. We do still sin. Sometimes we fight against it and resist. Other times we willingly run into it. But, but either way, temptation still does overcome us. So what from this story of Jesus' life can, can help us? Well, I think there's a, there's a few things at least. And the first is found in the opening sentence. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Our ability to be humbly faithful to God and his ways is helped or hindered by what we're full of. You know, we can binge watch Netflix or we can sit outside contemplating the beauty of creation and the creator behind it. We can have a, a gossip and gripe session for a couple of hours, or we can listen to uplifting Christian music. We can waste hours on, on social media, or we could use the time intentionally for prayer. Paul says in Galatians, he says, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It's like when, when you're exercising regularly and eating good foods and getting fit and healthy and, and feeling really positive in yourself and about life and all of that. When, when you're in that space, you actually don't want to eat that extra donut or, or to binge on that block of chocolate. Similarly, when we get full with the Spirit and we walk consistently with Him, we then likewise don't want to pursue the sin because we realize just how good it is with what we have. So walk, uh, be full of the Spirit. Secondly, as, as Jesus did, hold on to the truths of God. 
Now, when I say this, and despite probably every other message I've ever heard on this passage, what I mean by this, uh, what I don't mean by this rather, what I don't mean is to memorize scripture and to use it as a, as a weapon against temptation. Uh, I mean, you, you can definitely do that, and I'm not telling you not to. But for most of us, I suspect that we've already tried that. And then, if you're anything like me, you then end up feeling even guiltier uh, when you still give in. I, I learnt this verse that told me that this is a sin, and yet I've still done it, and, and so then uh, the, the guilt and the burden of that is even greater. So what I mean when I say to hold on to the truths of God, I mean to hold on to the deeper truths of who God is and of what he has done. For instance, after 40 days of fasting, Jesus was hungry. And that's then the very place where where Satan tempted him. But Jesus didn't quote a memorized verse against gluttony or or one about needing to have self-control. Instead, he held on to the the deeper truth that life is about more than just satisfying our physical desires. Likewise, Satan kept challenging his identity as the son of God. Uh, And again, there was no verse whipped out in an argument to that, but rather he held on to this truth of God that he was God's beloved son. I think we can get too caught up in the specific behaviors. Yes, it's the behavior that's sinful, But our behavior comes from somewhere. It comes from what we think and what we believe and what we feel. So the truths of God that we need to hold on to are who we are in him, what he is like, what he has done for us, and the perspective that all of that gives. So God is love, just, good, kind, patient, powerful, faithful, with us, supreme above all. King, Saviour. And we are loved, justified, sanctified, set free, redeemed, rescued, dead to sin, alive to Christ, family of God, seated in the heavenlies, heirs with Christ, citizens of the kingdom. As we hold on to and live out these truths, we can remain humbly faithful to our God. Third, we see Jesus live out the truth of James 4.7. It says there, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Sometimes we give in to temptation because we want to. Or sometimes we give in to it because we're naive about it and, and lax about it. But Jesus shows us that temptation is a test of our worship and it's a battle for our hearts. We can't be casual about it, but, but rather we need to be actively and ongoingly submitting our lives to God and actively and ongoingly resisting the devil. Now, I recognize in saying this that it's just little old us against a supernatural demonic power. No wonder we fall. But I want to remind you that we're not actually alone in the struggle. It's not just little old us. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that because Jesus himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And they go on to say, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Likewise, Paul writes, God is faithful. 
He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out for it so that you can endure. God helps us in this battle. He helps us to submit to him and to resist the devil. He helps us by his spirit that is in us and with us. So to be full of the spirit, to hold on to the deeper truths of God and to resist the devil submitting to God. Lastly, here then is the great hope that we have. That even when we fail and fall, because of Jesus, we can be forgiven. In Hebrews, it says of Jesus that for this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of his people. And that we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who was tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he did not sin. So let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. In 1 John it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Today, particularly confronted with this story of Jesus' resistance of temptation, today you might be feeling the weight of your sin and the despair of defeat. You might be feeling so unworthy and incapable of coming to God because yet again you've sinned in this way. That thing that you vowed you would never do, that thing you've been crying out to God for, for his help, you've done it again. And it's like, how can I come to God again with this on my conscience? But because of Jesus, our sin is actually a reason to run to God rather than to run away from him because he understands the power of temptation and he empathizes with our struggle but in having remained humbly faithful to god in obedience he's then able to deal with our sin so that we can approach god with confidence in his grace jesus bore the punishment for our sin upon himself as he died on that cross therefore if we trust in him as our savior and lord we can experience God's forgiveness and be made at one again with him. Jesus lived the perfect life that we could never live, to then die the death that we should have died, so that we can have the life that we don't deserve, a life forgiven, set free from sin, dead to, dead to sin, alive to God, in relationship with him, loved by him as part of his family and in all the freedom that that brings. So let's then come to our God with confidence, uh, approaching him for his grace. Let's pray. God, I, I thank you again at this time for Jesus. I thank you for the wonder of who he was, that yes, he was God fully so, but he was also fully human, just like us. And in this story, God, we've seen him resist Satan and to do so not as, you know, a divine being smiting his enemies, but as an ordinary human, humbly trusting in you, 
faithfully walking in obedience and submission to you, resisting the devil so that he then flees from him. I thank you for the witness of Jesus to us in this. May it give us hope and confidence that as we too, full of the Spirit, that we can resist the temptations that come. Help us to hold on to those deep truths of who we are, that, that when Satan comes, uh, comes with his lies, God, that, that we are holding on to your truth, the truth of who you are, of how you are, of what you've done, and of who we are then in you. God, help us to see temptation and the, the fight against sin, to, to see it as the battle that it is. It's not something to be casual and relaxed about, but may we be vigilant and aware and ready. And God, may we then, when we fall, may we come to you in dependence and in need. May we come to you relying not on our efforts, but on Jesus's. Not on what we do, but on what he has done. And may we experience afresh the forgiveness that you have for us. Lord, we need you. We need you in our life to, to fight against the temptation. We need you in our life to forgive us when we sin. We, we need you in our life, God, in all ways. And so we declare our, our faith and our trust in you. We ask, make us clean, purify us, make us at one with you again through what Jesus has done for us. And may he be glorified, we pray in his name. Amen.